On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether or not he would heal on the Sabbath so they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to them, to him, excuse me, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Thank you. So I was a little bit under the weather yesterday and therefore didn't drink any coffee, which means that today I drank coffee. Oh which also means if I'm talking too fast, every one of you has the permission to go like this. Now, if you email me and say, when you said this, and it's not something that I said, that, that's how to annoy me as a pastor. But to tell me to slow down, no problem whatsoever. And no one's done that, by the way, recently. I just want to free you. Like, I won't take it personally if you go like this. Do you remember uh, your first conflict as an employee of whatever job? I, when I was 15, I started working at a uh, grocery store. I don't know about you, maybe you started working a little later, maybe a little earlier. Do you remember the first time your boss like confronted you or maybe an employee confronted you or maybe a client? And in that moment, I'm betting that your reaction surprised you a little. You were more calm, you were less calm. You were internally fine, or you were internally just a mess. It lasted longer than you thought it would, or, or perhaps it was, it was all okay. We're looking at the questions that uh, were asked of Jesus, and throughout his earthly ministry, he's asked around 500 questions, and many of those are, are, are doubles, right? So Matthew, Mark, and Luke will include the same questions. But his friends asked him questions. People he came in contact with from other religions and other nations asked him questions. And then there are those who ask him questions that are really not for his ministry. They're his enemies. And enemy isn't a very um, popular word. In 2019, we believe we've evolved past all that. But an enemy is simply someone who's not for you. And there were many who were not for Jesus. And in his loving responses to them, many of them became for him and understood the power of the gospel. But what we're going to look at from now to Resurrection Sunday are the times that his opponents asked him questions and how he responded. 
I remember reading a couple of years ago this particular, about this particular story and the other times that Jesus is um, confronted about the Sabbath and how to keep the Sabbath. It's the fourth commandment. And one of my favorite authors, John Eldridge, likes to call this Jesus picking a fight. And if you look at Luke 13 and 14, um, that language really rings true. But what I like about Luke 6, and part of the reason I chose it as the example of Jesus teaching about the Sabbath is he's so clear that nothing he's doing in the second half of the text could be construed as work. Did you catch that? In Luke 13, by the way, Jesus is teaching on the Sabbath and a priest rebukes him. <laughs> that doesn't go very well. Jesus calls him a hypocrite because he is a hypocrite. If his beast had been in a, in a got caught in a brook, he would have pulled it out, right? So it's a hypocrite to say, I don't do any work on the Sabbath. But here, Jesus invites the man up and he doesn't touch him. And I don't know how familiar you are with the miracles of Jesus, but oftentimes various other pieces of creation are involved, sometimes more than once, oftentimes with touch. In this case, there's no touch. And I think the reason is Jesus is demonstrating without breaking the Sabbath what the Sabbath is for and who he is. So the man comes up and Jesus doesn't touch him, but he stretches out his hands. And as I'm reading this text, this is the thing that popped out to me this week. It's such a gentle way of reaching out to these Pharisees and scribes who thought he was breaking the Sabbath. This happens a bunch of times, uh, especially in Luke. Jesus answers with philosophy, like, you know this already. If your animal was in trouble, you would help it. He answers with argument, especially in Luke 13, where he gets a lecture. I encourage you to read that. It doesn't go well for the man who tries to lecture Jesus. And he points out that the Sabbath was created for man, not man for the Sabbath. And that points out something in us. That's very true for the Pharisees and I think is also true for you and for me. We hear the commands of God and under the curse that is over all the world, we mistake those commands for the heart of God or the promises of God. And we think that they're part of our system of control because that's what we long for, right? Not really, not at a heart level, but... In our daily life, our anxieties and angers and fears drive us to long to control as much as we possibly can, including God. When Jesus says the Sabbath was made for man, he's reversing that, helping us understand the promises and the commands of God are not for our control, they're for our flourishing. And Jesus answers them and he references David. And this is an interesting reference. I was just flipping back and looking at it in 1 Samuel. I don't know if you know the story, but David goes and he essentially steals some bread and lies to the priest, and the priest gives it to him, and it doesn't go well for the priest. And what Jesus is pointing out somewhat gently in the sense that he's not explaining to the Pharisees directly all the ways that they're missing the point, he's starting to talk to them about authority and how the law self-referentially knows that it has limits and knows that it is not what saves us. What I mean by that is for a priest to administer the Sabbath, they have to break some of the Sabbath commands. And these, these Pharisees and scribes know this, but they're challenging Jesus anyway. What the uh, Jews of the time did is they took the, the rules for the building of the tabernacle 
from the Old Testament law, and they turned them into 39 regulations about how to rest and practice corporate worship on the Sabbath. And I find that interesting, and most of those rules are things that if we held to for good reason, would give us a more restful Sunday. But those laws can't be kept, even by the priests and even by the king, who was a representative not only of the civic part of the nation, but of the religious part also. So Jesus is gently saying both David and the priests understand that all the semantic aspects of the Sabbath cannot be kept the way that you would define it. This is him gently walking them towards something that I think uh, probably was just as unpopular then as it is now. He uses parables, miracles, one time calling a name because he had just received a lecture, tells the man he's a hypocrite, to walk them towards authority. Right? We love that word, don't we? I don't think they liked it 2,000 years ago either. And yet, if God exists, then part of the flourishing life available because of the gospel of Jesus involves us learning to enjoy his authority. We don't want authority. We want control. We want information. And yet, what we have is a God who exists and was both fully man and fully God and can not only lend us his authority to make us right with God, but guide us in the with God life. But I think what was annoying the Pharisees was the authoritative way Jesus spoke. And not authoritative like mean, but authoritative as in clear. And it bugged them just like it bugs us to think about it. What we want is give me the information and I'm gonna go home and I'm gonna put it on my dining room table and I'm gonna read some of it and I'm gonna decide what I think. And Jesus is offering something far more profound. And part of it overlaps with um, a a relatively consistent um, criticism I hear of Christians is that they want to hold their morals and they just let go of other morals. So, right, shellfish. Sometimes when Christians talk about their morals, people will say, but you still eat shellfish. And they're referencing something that's far more complicated than that tweet. And that is that when God gave the Old Testament law, he was doing three things at the same time. And all three of those things flow out of his pursuing and loving heart. In Exodus chapter 19, which is the chapter before the law, although they already knew about the Sabbath, because that's how gracious and loving he is. In Exodus chapter 19, before he gives the law, he says, you yourselves know how I rescued you from Egypt, how I bore you up on eagles' wings to create a nation of priests, meaning those who minister about the with God life to others. So it's a rescuing move. And in light of that rescuing move, he then gives them the law. And the law has three functions. One is civic. They were to operate as a church-state nexus. And you're like, this is so, did I drive through the snow to hear about a church-state nexus? It's kind of important. Bear with me. They weren't even supposed to have kings. That came later when they were disappointed with the church-state nexus. But that's the civic part of the law. They were also given ceremonial laws, and the ceremonial laws were to distinguish them from other countries. And that distinguishing was not to make them separate from the other nations. The distinguishing of the nation of Israel was to draw other nations to them in the with God life. 
Do you know the Sabbath command in Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11? It's the only command that implies an evangelistic tone. It expects people from other nations to see how well God's people rest and they want to rest with them. And in the command, it includes if there are strangers, sojourners, invite them in. So there's the civic law, the church-state nexus. There's the ceremonial law. And then there's the moral law. Well, in Acts chapter 9 and John chapter 15, in the book of Hebrews, we learn that the ceremonial law is fulfilled in Christ, which is why we eat shellfish, some of us. Perhaps you've heard Jim Gaffigan on this. You can't eat it anymore. I get that. You guys haven't heard him on this? Oh, it's amazing. He said, you, you're the ones that braved the snow. You need to know this joke. He said, what more could God have done? I'm going to put it on the floor of the ocean, inside a rock, looks like snot, tastes like pneumonia. <laughs> I think that's pretty funny. So the ceremonial law, according to Acts chapter 9, John chapter 15, in the book of Hebrews, is complete in Jesus Christ. The civic aspect of the law has not been in place since the nation of Israel was exiled to Babylon hundreds of years before Jesus. But the moral law continues to serve us as a guide to the with God life. It, what do we do in response to God's pursuing love and calling us to himself? Exodus 19 as well as all throughout the New Testament. How then shall we live? We still have the moral law and its authority. Jesus answers the questions referencing David and then he references himself. See, in, in deifying the law, in asking the law to save, we're ignoring God by controlling him. By believing that how we behave equals rightness with God it's, is actually a, a way of running from the heart of God as it pursues and runs after us. See Luke chapter 15. And it's because we desire in our fear and anxiety and anger that you came by honestly. We desire control and information and not the freedom of the relinquishment of our lives to Jesus. This is what's so challenging to explain about the gospel of Jesus, but so sweet. In, our, in relinquishing control, he gives back to us the most full, healed, rested of soul version of ourself. It doesn't seem that way. It seems like if we could just control our day and our lives, perhaps our anxieties and our fears and our angers would be okay and actually it's laying them in front of him and allowing him to take them in his hands, offer the Holy Spirit indwelling us, healing us even in this moment and he gives back to us a full version of ourselves. And this is the Son of Man telling us this. When Jesus says the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, he's making a, a, a very powerful two-sided claim. The Son of Man is the one who was fully human, the most human human who has ever walked the earth, who was very emotionally mature. Did you ever notice that about Jesus? I love that Jesus could sleep anywhere. I can't sleep. I can barely take naps anymore because all the things are bothering me all the time. 
I have to really plan a day if I want to nap well. It involves drinking less coffee. It involves making sure I'm not working. It involves less screens. Jesus could sleep in a boat during a storm. He knew how to rest physically. He was emotionally mature, very comfortable with anger, very comfortable with sadness, very comfortable celebrating people, so much so that he was called a drunk and a glutton, though he was not those things, but he celebrated so well he was called those things. So when he says the Son of Man in the text, he's reminding us that he fully experienced life and his authority comes not only from his God power, it also came from his full humanity. Comfortable with emotions and comfortable with his physical limits. He was comfortable with spiritual limits. You know, he sometimes prayed at great length and sometimes prayed very briefly. John chapter 11, his prayer is like half a sentence. And he even like talks more about the prayer before he prayers, before he prays, which some of us do. He was comfortable praying short and long. And he's the Lord of the Sabbath, which would have made the Pharisees very upset. You're in charge over one of the commands of God? Yes, because he is God. At this point in the story, he's gently, slowly leading them towards the double authority he had as God and man. So we don't like the word authority, so it's fun to reference not only Jesus' authority, but the fact that it had two sides, right? Maybe not. Maybe you don't dislike the word as much as I think you do. That's fine. Jesus references himself as he teaches them about the way. What is the way? What has it done in your heart and for your heart? Has it given your soul rest to know that God is a pursuing and loving Father? Has it given your soul peace to know that you cannot save yourself? Jesus did all the work that is necessary. Has it given you peace to know that probably well before you proclaimed Jesus as Lord in prayer or out loud, his Holy Spirit was with you and that Holy Spirit will never let you go. I hope that it has. And I hope that in that trusting of the way, you look to God to describe to you the flourishing life he purchased back to the commands. And I want to say something about the commands of God. First of all, they always follow the promises. Exodus 19 leads to Exodus 20. Second of all, they are an act of resistance. Following Jesus in every country and culture in the world, following him is an act of resistance. In a traditional society, it will be more obvious that your individual calling to God is, is an act of resistance. In a modern society, the protection of, of family and the interest in moral purity will look like resistance. And in every culture that I've ever seen, following the fourth commandment is an act of civic resistance. In a traditional society, they turn it into all sorts of laws about what you can and can't do on Sundays. In a modern society, we trade rest for diversion. Actually learning spiritual practices of rest because of the love of God will be a resistance 
to the curse. It will be resistance to the sin ever around you. It will be resistance to the injustice and lack of peace that we see everywhere around us. And it is challenging to learn to rest. The anxieties and fears and anger within us that we came about, we came upon legitimately, they threaten us when we seek to sit and breathe in and remember the good news of God. Learn to rest and to eat, to pray, to rest. When you believe and are gripped by the gospel of Jesus, that God loves and likes you, that Jesus has restored your relationship with him because of his work and the Holy Spirit, and then you follow in the ways that he's described. It is an act of resistance in every culture. Right before this scene, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus describes it this way. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus' conflicts with the Pharisees teach us that his way is the way to receive rest for our soul. And we still keep the law, but not because it's a check mark with God, because it is a guide to the flourishing he has purchased for each one of us. I hope that your faith your religious practices both here and elsewhere are about reminding your soul of the rest Jesus purchased for it. That is a profound act of resistance to the curse, to the injustice we see around us, to our need to control and understand everything. Profound resistance is found in leaning into the rest purchased by Jesus of Nazareth. I hope you experience your faith that way. I hope your prayers are that way. I hope on Tuesday when you sit for a moment with the Lord, the Holy Spirit immediately comforts you. This is a way of rest for your souls. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, we trust you and we ask that you would help us to trust you. We believe that your burden is easy and light and that you have purchased rest for our souls and yet we do not sense it because of the curse and our anxieties and sin which constantly tempts us. Heavenly Father, comfort us in your love. Draw us in your peace. Remind us in song and in our minds and in our prayers that your Son has indeed paid it all for us, that we might receive your rest and enjoy it forever. Amen.